like Pastor Dave said, we get to work in the youth group, my wife and I, and my assistant Kyle Stankus, Coach Kyle, to all the guys and his wife, Chelsea. And doing that, my Wednesday nights typically start off with, um, I get to watch the phones ministry because I'm in the high school watching the kids. And so the phones ministry comes in and, and they're doing, taking all the calls from the In Grace program. And so I start with that. And then we go home, we get dinner, get the kids ready, take them to Awana. They're all in different levels of Awana. And then I go make sure my college guys are good. Those of you on the basketball team, check in with you guys. And then I go hit up youth group and get to hang out with the high schoolers for, for Wednesday night. So you almost forget with everything going on in this place that there's actually church on Wednesday night. Um, and I'm much more comfortable downstairs in the basement with the youth group. If I had an Apple watch on, it would say, are you doing a workout right now? Because my heart rate is all over the place. Um, but I've been so blessed to grow up in this church and to be surrounded by um, people who are just committed to the cause of Christ and people who are wanting to do um, the right thing. I had two loving parents who were faithful members of the church. Uh, they were employees of the church and they put me and my sister through the Christian school here. So um, we had that. I definitely, if you want to call it a bubble, was in a bubble for my whole life. And I regretfully always wanted to pop that bubble and see what was on the outside of it. Um, but back during Thanksgiving, my family and I went to Ohio where a friend of ours um, is now pastoring. He's an associate pastor at Chile Bible Church and is Todd Harriman, Pastor Todd Harriman. And him and I were in the same grade. We graduated uh, the same year. And, and it's crazy to see how God has used him and we're the same age. Um, so he was speaking. It was Thanksgiving time. So he's got the obligatory Thanksgiving message. And he was telling of things that he's thankful for, but he used... Hebrews 12.1, as um, a starting point. I'll read that to you guys now. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which just so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And he was using that. Normally, pastors will use that, and they'll talk about like the weight and, the, and running the race. But he used it in the, in the, um, the way of the cloud of the witnesses, right? And I think that's you guys. That's the crowd of people that we have in our church. And I'm grateful for that. And as he was talking, I was sitting in the pews and I just had images flooding my head of preschool teachers that I still remember growing up through here. Kindergarten teachers, first through 12th grade teachers, my coaches, um, my youth group leaders, my bosses when I started working at the church as a young teenager, um, the pastoral staff. I mean, they're, they're second to nobody here. Um, the way that they've personally invested in my life made me feel like I was one of their kids. Um, sorry. Um, I feel like I graduated high school just a couple of years ago. Sometimes I still act like a high schooler. And uh, 
I just sat there reminiscing about people and I could probably list over a hundred people. This was not happening every time I practiced it. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but thank you guys. Everybody's sitting in here. You're the cloud of witnesses. You were there my whole life. You gave me a smile when I needed that. Smacked me up across the side of the head when I needed to get straightened out. So thank you. I want to encourage you too. Those of you who are still in it. Keep up the race. Lay aside those weights. When I had to make some real big life choices, I wanted what was over here. <laughs> Things that would fulfill my flesh. But I had so many faces of people that I couldn't disappoint. I better get through this, man. Holy cow. <sighs> I couldn't justify the choices that I wanted. And I'm thankful because my life would be so different. So with all that being said, let's try to get this all over with. And we're going we're gonna to start with the message. So my title for tonight, and I want to ask you this, have you ever heard the statement, no offense, but, and then been really offended by whatever followed that statement? Right? And... That's the title for this evening is no offense, but, and you can fill in the blank with whatever. But I wonder how many people of you have noticed that people in the world lately have just been getting, they're really easily offended and they get really angry easily. How many of you would say that you noticed that that's kind of a trend? Okay. I'd hate to ask this follow-up question, but how many of those people are Christians? How many of you have noticed that Christians are some of the most easily offended people? right? And why do you think that is? So we're going to talk today, we're going to kind of talk about the culture, uh, people being so incredibly uh, offended and angry, and what our response as followers of Jesus should be to all this division and hatred that we seem to just see everywhere. Um, this is for all of us who want grace for ourselves, but we struggle to extend it to other people. Anger is the biggest, most foundational problem in life. And the definition of offend or offended is to cause a person or group to feel hurt, angry, or upset by something said or done. All the dictionaries say something about anger or resentment. And it's the taking of offense and the presumption that somehow I'm entitled to this as I'm entitled to be angry with this person that I'm talking about. And we often think that surely there has to be a place as Christians for us to have righteous anger uh, against somebody. And we think that being offended is just part of being a Christian. I would answer that as yes, I would agree with that. But what should we do with that? You gotta research it. I gotta find scripture that'll back that up. But I think as we continue on and we continue to look at scripture, um, we should choose to not be offended people. And we have that choice. We need to forfeit your right to be offended, forfeit that right to be angry. And this will force you to get your pride out of the way and become more humble. It's easy to think that being Christian means we should take offense to lots of things, especially 
with all these injustices we see in the world. Right now, this is a society of, I don't think we were designed as human beings to be able to see all of the nasty things that go on in the world on our phones as soon as it's happening. As the stuff in Gaza was coming through, I was reminded of that. The attacks were coming, and instantly, as it's happening, I'm getting videos of what these people are doing. I don't think we're capable of handling that. Um, but this is what we're living in. So as Christians, we feel like we, we can be offended at some of these things. Let's think about it. What would happen if we were the most refreshing people, the most refreshingly unoffendable people in a planet that seems to orbit around you having to take offense about something? Forfeiting your right to anger forces you to deny yourself and makes you put others in the center. It's going to change everything if you start living that way. It's not a right because that right doesn't even exist. We talk about Christian books, right? Christian literature. And this has been mentioned several times since I can remember being this tall hearing that in this pulpit. Be careful reading Christian books. If it doesn't match the Bible, the Bible is the authority. That's it. Done. So if it doesn't match the Bible, throw it away. Here's one example. And this is typical. This is from an online devotional on anger. This writer gives what I think is a common understanding on anger. And that is that anger is sometimes just what we need. Here's the quote. There's often a positive even essential side to anger. I doubt that we ever accomplish anything fruitful when anger isn't part of our motivation on a certain level at least. So if you heard that, it says we don't ever accomplish anything fruitful without anger. And to me, that doesn't seem to line up with what I've, set, what I've seen in scripture and what I've read. Here's another example of how we retrofit actual scripture with our current anger culture. I'm gonna read you Ephesians 4.26. It says, be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. And then Ephesians 4.26, it's the same verse, but it's in the Message Bible. It's a different translation. It says, go ahead and be angry. You do well to be angry, but don't use your anger as fuel for revenge. So you do well to be angry. It doesn't seem like what I just read. And then it's crazy that to me that this translator for the Message Bible decides that he can do that Considering a couple sentences later, Paul wrote in verses 31 to 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And somehow from this, we get you do well to be angry, right? Don't ignore verses when studying scripture. People will go to scripture and they'll say, in your anger, don't sin. But ignoring the rest that says, don't be bitter and don't be angry. You might be wondering why the KJV says, be ye angry. And I think Paul like, gets it, right? We're human. You're gonna be angry. It's gonna happen. But get rid of it. Deal with it. You have no right to hold on to that. An honest question would be after that, does, is God allowed to hold on to his anger? Doesn't Jesus get angry? God is allowed anger, yes. And plenty of other things that we aren't, like vengeance, for instance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, right? 
That's his. The Bible says it. It makes sense that we aren't allowed to it. And here's the difference. Here's why. We stand just as guilty as whoever the target of our anger is, but God doesn't. God is allowed to judge too, but you're not. He can be trusted with that judgment because he's very different from us. He's perfect. We're not. Anger, his character does allow this. Ours doesn't. You're not God. I'm not God. So think about the last time you were angry about something. And I'm sure you won't admit this, but I think we kind of like to be angry. I think we don't like what caused the anger, but we just like thinking that we've got something on somebody. Someone did something wrong. And anger offers us that sense of moral high ground on that person. And that's why we call it righteous anger because it's moral, it's good. We want to think, right? That's what we want to think. Righteous anger directed at someone is pretty tricky. As it turns out, I tend to find my anger towards somebody a lot more righteous than theirs. And it's because I'm so stinking right all the time. Um, I tend to always side with me. My arguments really make sense. They're super convincing to me. Proverbs 16, verse two. All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weigheth the spirit. You might think you're doing right, but ultimately it's God who's gonna judge the motive. It's all of us, apparently. That's why it's in Proverbs. We all find ourselves pretty darn convincing and our anger is righteous because we're right and others are wrong. In the heat of the moment, everybody's anger seems righteous. Anger is a feeling that sweeps over us and tells us we're being denied something that we should have. We humans are experts at casting ourselves as a victim, rewriting narratives so that we put us in the center of that injustice. Yet whenever we read the Bible, there's no allowance for, oh, that person really is a jerk. You can, you can be mad at him. Let's give him some anger. He flat out said to forgive, even especially the things that are legitimately offensive. This is the whole point. The thing that you think makes your anger righteous is the very thing that I'm called to forgive. Anger is extremely easy, but love isn't. Love is difficult. Love is a miracle. There's an article about anger and Martin Luther King Jr., the author quoted King's autobiography where he wrote, you must not harbor anger, but that's not all. Even when attacked, we should love our enemies. And the author spun the statement into something for an endorsement for anger, saying we should just make sure we use anger constructively. The author makes it look like he agrees with Dr. King at first, but then he ends up saying something nearly the opposite. King says, don't harbor anger. And the author says, I agree, let's just use it wisely. And that's what we do with Jesus all the time. We take something like love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then we, and instead we hold on to that anger and we think that it's justified. Shouldn't we get angry at those guys in the news that are beating up people in the streets or, or how about in Chicago? Chicago, just all the crime that's happening in Chicago, the murders, aren't we allowed to have, we should be angry at that, right? Um, here's what I think. We're to get rid of all anger. Anger is gonna happen, we're human, we can't keep it. Like Dr. King said, recognize the injustice. You can grieve it, but then you gotta act against it without rage, without malice, without anger. We should have enough motivation to defend the defenseless without needing anger. 
much like this church is doing with the Jewish people. Or Pastor Dave just mentioned, we have the campaign going with the baby bottles, with abortion. You don't need to be angry to do what's right. The best police officers don't do their job in anger. Why? Because they're going to mess up. Anger doesn't enhance their judgment. Anger only will reduce the ability to make good decisions. And God is capable of being both just and angry. But if I'm on trial in front of a human judge, I hope he can make decisions without anger. Here's a big thought. The big thought of the night. This is going to be the verses we'll come back to a couple of times. Um, It's going to be from the book of James, James chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 19, and we'll read more a little bit later. But it says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Talking to Christians, he gives us some instruction. How are you doing with this assignment, Christians? We should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry in a culture that is exactly the opposite of all of that. No one's listening but they're very, very quick to tell you what their opinion is. And as soon as I hop on Instagram, I'm angry about something. We should be slow to speak, quick to listen. Look at Jesus, the way he lived his life. This is exactly how he lived. He was incredibly others focused. And because of that, he was slow to listen. He's always listening to people. And he was slow to speak, quick to listen. I think I might have said slow to listen. Uh, When we think about slow to become angry, I think that anger has kind of been evolving in my lifetime. The things that I used to get angry about a couple years ago are different than things I get angry now. For instance, um, someone cuts you off in traffic or I text somebody and little bubbles pop up and then they disappear and they don't respond. Who does that? Or get this, you have some friends over, you're going to watch a movie or watch a sports game or something, and it's like dead quiet. Your, your wife and your sister-in-law are sitting in the room, and you put on the movie, and all of a sudden the floodgates open and they can't stop talking. <laughs> Love you, babe. <laughs> it's the little things like that. These were the normal offenses, Right? But it seems like anger has kind of escalated in our culture today. It's all around. Everybody's angry about something. It's, it's anger at those idiots on social media arguing about vaccine, no vaccine, wear a mask, no mask. He should have knelt for the national anthem. No, he shouldn't have knelt for the national anthem. The visible politician guy who's like abusing his power, very obviously. It's getting angry about your issue, whatever your issue is, because we all have our issue. There's an issue that everybody has. And we think that everybody should be upset about what we're what our issue is. The Christians are going to do this. Every single issue on amongst hundreds of issues. But you get hungry, hungry, angry about your issue and you take it to the next level. I'm getting too fast. Um, you get angry at other people because they're not angry at the same thing that angers you. It's that anger that's kind of evolving. And I don't know about you, but I find myself easily agitated and a lot easily uh, more angered. And I don't think that's pleasing to God. It's hard to admit this. It may not be true for everyone, but I actually think there are people that really like to be angry. 
People enjoy being angry. I think they're all getting on their little Facebook groups with your 50 friends just reposting the same thing to get angry about and like, yeah, 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 let's get angry all together. Or, or the, the ladies, the soccer moms all at the soccer games getting angry about the same thing or your bros at the gym. And it just feels really good when we're in a big group and we're all getting angry at the same thing and, and we're angry and everybody else is wrong. We're in the right. They're evil, right? They're either evil, they're idiots, or they're evil idiots. Those are three things, right? We're easily angered. That's the next point. Everybody's an idiot except for me. Choosing not to take offense is not about just ignoring wrongs. Somebody cuts you in line, it's okay to address it, but you don't just have to accept it and, and you can act without contempt, anger, and bitterness. Why? Because whatever somebody else has done to me or to anybody else, I'm standing here just as guilty. People have lied to me, so have I lied. People have betrayed me, I've betrayed other people. People have hurt me, and I've hurt other people. There's probably a lot of people that I've hurt that I don't even know about because I didn't care in the moment. I get upset when I watch the news and I see the way that our, our locally, our city and our suburbs of Chicago, the things that happen here, the murders, right? I get really upset. But then Jesus tells me if I've ever hated somebody, which I definitely have hated a lot of people, I'm now equal to that murderer. And we don't like to hear this because we like to think that people are worse than us. There's somebody out there that's worse than me. It's one of, our, one of our favorite things to do as humans. Next time you go to a restaurant or a food court, go get your food, sit at a table and just listen to the conversations around you and just compare how many people are talking about the hurtful, wrong things that have happened to them versus how many people are talking about the hurtful or wrong things that they've done to somebody else. We do this in traffic, right? The longer you drive, you're going to experience this more. We were just... Uh, I was with the college guys, basketball trip. We were in Michigan last week and we had a couple games. And I'm driving the bus, you know, clipping along. And all of a sudden this little infinity something or other just speeds right past me, 100 miles an hour, had to be. And almost clips the car to the side. So he juts across, cuts me off in a bus. I'm like, you're an idiot. If you hit me, I win. Um, almost takes off the next bumper in front of him. I just was like, what a moron. You're an idiot. You're going to hurt your car. You're going to hurt somebody or you're going to hurt yourself. But then I get in my car with some of my friends. And I'm telling you, when I'm driving in my car, the road is full of idiots. <laughs> Everybody else. And so I start to get mad and I start to get upset and I start to go really fast. And I start to cut off all the idiots because they don't know how to drive. And it's always because it's that guy. That guy is always wrong. It's never this guy. I'm always this guy. In other words, everyone else is an idiot, but I'm awesome. Go me, right? Moral of the story, the other guy is always the jerk. Many times driving, I'm in my car yelling that all the time. Ask my wife, moron, idiot. She's like, dude, you got like three lives in the back of the car and me. So let's chill out. True story. But never do I start yelling at myself, Aaron, you're an idiot. 
you're a moron, learn how to drive. I don't do that because I'm the victim. My intentions are always pure. And it's other people that are the perpetrators, not me. I feel like this is a natural response to me anyways. It's as natural as breathing. Um, But that definitely doesn't make it right. And here's the thing, whatever they did, whatever situation, whatever that idiot did, I stand here just as guilty because most likely I've done the same exact thing. I think you could get a lot of people to tell you that you can and even should hold on to your anger for a time. But when you ask how long, they say, you know, just for a little bit, for a little while. And that sounds reasonable, sure. But reasonable isn't what we're going for here. We want to follow the gospel wherever it takes us. God has a specific way for us to love, a specific way that he has called us to live. And this is the way that we're going to flourish. What about being angry at sin, right? I feel like that when we ask this question, we're usually referring to something more specific. And by sin, we mean his sin, not mine. Should we cling to anger at other sins? I think Jesus did that. I think he, he did enough. He died on the cross for his. He died for mine. It's God, let God deal with that. It's not our deal. Life is better this way. Psalms 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. This verse reminds us our sins are gone. God has cast them as far away as can possibly be. But even with this reminder about our sin, you'll still find yourself around people who just can't let go of anger and just want to keep it in the forefront of their lives. And the Bible, anger is always, not sometimes, always associated with foolishness, never wisdom. Ecclesiastes 7, 9, be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. Yeah, you might get angry. We've been talking about this. You're a human. It's going to happen. Don't let it take hold in your life. Get rid of it or else you're a fool according to the Bible. Anger lives in the laps of fools. Thinking that you're entitled to keep the anger in our lap, whether it be towards the sins of a political figure, the sins of a news network, uh, your boss at work, your neighbor, your parents, friends, whoever, that's all perfectly natural. But according to the Bible, it's perfectly foolish. Being offended all the time is extremely tiring. Let it go. You have a lot more energy. Go in the rest of the week choosing to not be offended. Go into situations ahead of time. Think to yourself, I'm not going to get offended. No matter what the boss says, no matter what my coworker says or the kids at school, right? I'm not going to get offended. That simple step, reminding yourself that, is going to relieve a lot of stress. It's a huge part of the battle. Most of you know this. Here's the truth. Most of the time, whatever it is that we take personally wasn't really directed towards us in the first place. It's just some people are rude, selfish, and you just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. So why? Why take it personally? You can if you want to, but why? I think people thrive on being offended. It makes us feel more righteous to get aggravated at the behavior of other people. We allow ourselves to be offended by the behavior of people that we don't even know. That's the social media aspect. These people that I get mad at that are spewing just... I'm getting offended. Um, Just stuff that is so contrary to what the Bible teaches. And 
I don't even know that person, but yet I'm, I have legitimate anger towards that person. This is the society we live in. We like to go out of our way to hear or read something outrageous that some celebrity or politician does. And literally, as soon as life starts to slow down a little bit, you pull out your phone and you're just in it for hours if you let it. Jesus gives us a radical example that a majority of Christians wouldn't like to do nor follow. It's true, sometimes people do try to offend us or intentionally hurt us and they're spiteful. Yet here is Jesus beaten, nailed to a cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So a fair question would be that the same Jesus that we as Christians are trying to emulate, that we're trying to become like in the image of Christ, we're seeking to resemble him Is that that same Jesus that I'm trying to be like? Yeah. Here's another tough question. Are you honestly aware of just how little we actually know about what's going on in other people's lives? When it comes to human motive, figuring out why people do things they do, we're actually worse than clueless because while we're being clueless, we're simultaneously under the impression that we're being brilliant. 1 Corinthians 4, 3 through 5 But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self, for I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God." Paul wrote this a couple thousand years ago and Paul says he doesn't even know anyone's motives, not even his own. Even if his own conscience was clear, doesn't mean that he was innocent. And Paul was aware of his inability to judge himself. He couldn't trust himself, so he left, that to, he left the judging to God. God will sort it out in the end. So God knows others' private motives, we don't. God knows our private motives, we don't. And we can judge others' motives. We think we can judge others' motives, but we're wrong. A study done by Dan, I'm butchering the last name, but I think it's Kahan. He's a law professor at Yale and he led a study that found that our passions and biases undermine even basic reasoning. He took people that were really good at math and he would give them problems and they were suddenly unable to solve the problem if the answer conflicted with their political belief. Instead of changing our beliefs to match reality, we often change reality or our perception of reality to match what we believe. Another wrinkle in that when there's two, in in his test, when there was two sides to a story, we tend to think that the first one that we hear is the right one. Proverbs 18, 17, he that is first in his own cause seemeth just, but his neighbor cometh and searcheth him. The life we live is full of conflict, full of differing perspectives. And through all of this, Guess whose perspective we listen to first? Our own, mine. We establish that storyline and we get angry before we even see the other side. So humble yourself, have the guts to believe what the Bible and the research says. We simply can't trust ourselves in our judgments of others. I have a lot more notes. We still got time, right? When do we have to end? Doesn't matter, whenever I want, now? 
we don't know other people's background, right? We don't know what they're really thinking. We don't know what their motives are for what they do. Um, since we don't know, choose ahead of time to not let what people say or do offend you. It's like in basketball. We tell our guys, it was a very close game. We lost, we lost last Friday by one point, heartbreaker. We came back Saturday. We started off down again. We like to do that a lot. We dig ourselves in the hole and we like to see if we can dig ourselves out. Um, but we, we went on a run. We were up, I don't know, 14, something like that, the second day. And they kept coming back to the huddle and we kept saying, it's coming. It's a game of runs. They're coming. They're going to start scoring in bunches, but don't let that affect your game because you know what's coming, right? So we know what's happening and we can choose ahead of time to not let what people do or say offend us. Our hearts are deceptive. And this is humbling, not because I, my heart can deceive somebody else, but because my heart deceives me. Um, let's go to Romans chapter two, verses one through three. The human heart, anger and gratitude can't coexist. It's one or the other. Here we go, Romans 2, 1 through 3. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God. We are just as guilty as they are guilty. Jesus really levels the playing field so that no one can honestly pretend that he or she is righteous. People will say, for instance, I'm not an adulterer, but then Jesus comes along and says, if you've ever lusted after anybody, you're just as guilty. And this makes sense to me because um, in the same way that he does with murder and hatred in your heart, he says, if you have hatred in your heart, then you're just as guilty as the murderer. And it makes sense because think of it this way. Just because you haven't had the opportunity to follow through what was in your heart doesn't make you any morally superior to that person who actually fell into that sin. Fair enough? I think so. On one level, we don't like this because it puts us on the same playing field as the murderer. We like to build ourselves up and put ourselves on these big pedestals and Jesus comes in and knocks that all down and puts us on the same, on the same level and then what does he do? He goes and dies on the cross and pays for the murderer's sin and the hater's sin. We're all in the same, we're all in the same boat, right? We keep making the point that we aren't entitled to this anger. And this is extreme sounding to some people, but to Jesus, it isn't extreme enough. In Matthew 18, he tells a story of the unmerciful servant. This is a guy who, who owed the king 10,000 talents and the king orders him to be sold along with his wife, his kids, and all of his possessions. And the guy's pleading with him. He throws himself at the feet of the king, begging for mercy. The king was moved and he had pity on him and he let him go. The guy runs to the fellow servant's house who owed him a hundred um, pence. And he had that man thrown into prison until he could repay the debt. He didn't have any compassion or mercy on his fellow servant with a debt that could have been repaid a hundred pence I tried doing some research on it. It's a very little amount. And the 10,000 talent that he owed was extreme. 
So his talent probably could not have been paid back. But his fellow servant, the one that he went and had thrown into prison, could have paid it back over time. And the king heard about this and it really ticked him off. So a couple of verses later, if you read down, it says that he delivered the servant to the tormentors until he paid his original debts. Jesus told this story in response to Peter asking, how many times, God, how many times do we have to forgive? Seven times? Thinking that that was enough and, and God said no, right? He says, effectively before God, we are in far deeper debt than anyone who needs forgiveness from us. In that story, we're not just as guilty as the one whom we need to forgive, we are worse. Here's a thought. We're able to decide whether your anger is righteous or not. I think we would all be in trouble because we can't trust ourselves. Trust yourself. I hear that a lot in society. Sounds perfectly normal thing to do, but the problem is for Christians, this isn't biblical at all. We're very deceptive. Jeremiah 17, nine, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? Another one, Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Proverbs 3, five through seven, trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding and all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord, depart from evil. It's very far away from trust yourself. We struggle with trusting God to bring about that punishment or the justice. We're afraid that he's not gonna punish people for the wrong things that they're doing and that he won't give them what they deserve. So maybe that's where our entitlement for anger comes from. It's our little way of making sure that justice gets served. We're too good at deceiving ourselves to know whether we have righteous anger or not. Maybe this is why we can't find a place in scripture that allows us to. Even so, we can still fool ourselves into thinking that we're the victim, that we're innocent and we're justified because we were victimized. This human trait goes way back to the first humans, Adam and Eve, right? When God confronted them in the garden, what did Adam say? It was Eve's fault. And what did Eve say? It was the serpent's fault, right? They're playing the victim. They were the victims. When you go back to basketball again, we had a huge college game here last night. Guess what we did? First half, dug ourselves into a huge hole. We were down 21. The boys came back. Man, they fought. I was so proud of them. We were up where we were down, down by 10 at halftime. And then we came out. They started scoring a little bit and then we cut the lead down and then we ended up taking the lead by seven points. There's a big foul. It's the most electric I've heard that building in years. It was so loud in that place. If you were here last night, you probably don't have a voice. I'm glad I have a voice. I forgot I was speaking tonight. I was acting a fool last night. But there was a foul called, okay? And the one team's fans were positive that there was absolutely no contact and there's no way you should call that foul. And the other team's fans were like screaming, call the foul, right? And it's the same play. There was the same evidence, but yet one team's fan base felt victimized by the ref's call. Mine, we felt victimized. <laughs> DJ fouled out. We're absolute masters at changing reality to fit our narrative. Jesus wants to disrupt all this. I'm reminded of the story when uh, there was the woman at the well and she was an adulteress and, and the Pharisees were there and they all had the stones in their hand and they were ready to just finish her. And Jesus came up and said, 
Let him who have no sin cast the first stone, right? We're all there. Anger gives me the right to hold that stone. I might not throw it, but I'm gonna hold on to it since that person is guilty of this horrible thing. But in the story, all the Pharisees, right? The good guys, they walked away empty-handed. They had to throw the rocks on the ground and walk away because they had nothing. If you believe that whenever someone else is doing, I'm worse, then you're engaging in what Jesus actually said to do. What he actually tells us about ourselves in the unmerciful story or the unmerciful servant story. All right, we're gonna close. I gotta read, oh, there's so much left. I did not think this would be the problem. How effective is your anger? James 1, 19 through 20, we're gonna go back there. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. There's two things. We're gonna skip ahead. First thing I wanna encourage you to do is lower your expectation of other people. Lower what you expect of them because we know what's gonna happen. They're gonna lie. They're gonna let you down. They're gonna betray you. They're gonna not come to your birthday party. Uh, They're gonna forget to send you a happy birthday when you sent them happy birthday, right? And it's gonna be this whole big deal. Um, And you're just gonna be incredibly disappointed because of your expectation for those people. You expect them to just love you so much. And because of that, you're gonna get hurt. They're people. Instead of saying, I can't believe she would and I'm just shocked that they would and I never thought a Christian would do this. Remember, sinners do sinful things. And if you start elevating your expectations and thinking everyone's gonna love you, you're gonna be hurt. Apostle Paul told Timothy how people are. 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 4, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. And we're shocked when they don't call us back. Sinful people do sinful things. The second thing I wanna do is encourage you to raise your gratitude for God's grace. How many of you have never, ever, ever sinned? You've never done anything wrong. You deserve God's love. You've never lied. You've never cheated. You've never looked lustfully. You've never envied. You've never gossiped on a friend. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter two, verses that bring many to faith, this side. It's by grace. The grace of God that you've been saved through faith, it's not you yourself. In other words, it's not because you were good, not because you were holy, not because you had it all together, not because you went to church, you did everything right at church, you never did anything wrong. It's not because of you. It's the gift of God. It's by grace. The goodness of God, the mercy of God that Jesus died on the cross for us It's because of his perfection, because of his righteousness. It's all his goodness. It's his grace that makes us right with God. It's not our goodness. Jesus didn't call us to be right. He called us to be loving. Our goal is to make a difference, not to convert people to our view on some small trivial issue. It's to show others and to bring them to the one who changed our lives. His name is Jesus. Jesus was quick to listen. He was slow to speak, slow to become angry. And if that's, why, if that's the way that Jesus lived and loved, that's the way I wanna live in love. Because human anger, my human anger and your human anger doesn't produce righteousness that God desires. So let's rise above it. Let's lead with love, make a difference 
in this point in the world because God can use you. If you don't know what we're talking about with relationship with God, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says it. For by grace you save through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works as any man should boast. Nothing we can do to get there, right? It's just belief. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. All it is is belief. There's nothing you can do to get there. You can't be good. You can't go to church. You can't, you can't get there on your own because if we try to get there on our own, it completely discredits what he did on the cross. And once you have it, it's forever. There's nothing you could do to lose it. Thank you guys for coming. I appreciate it. Um, let's, close, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Dear Father, thank you for this day. Thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to come together in freedom in a country and we can come together in a building and we can talk about you and we can learn about you and fellowship with fellow believers. We pray for our country that we can continue to have those freedoms. Thank you for all of our leaders. Thank you for our church, our pastors. Bring them home safe and help us to have a good rest of the evening and to get home safely this evening. Have a good rest of the week at work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.